Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Happy Monday, everyone. I am Deanna Hayes. I am the chair of Ogletree's Multi-State Advice and Counseling Practice Group, and we're excited to welcome you to our latest episode of Multi-State Monday, where we discuss multi-state compliance issues that are trending. And today, in honor of Mother's Day, We are calling this episode Pump It Up so that we can understand the new Pump Act and pregnancy workers' fairness laws. This is a a very exciting topic. It's new. I'm a mother. I'm excited to hear more about it. In addition to Susan Gorey, who's joined us before, we have Christine Townsend, who joins us from the Chicago and Milwaukee offices, and she is up to speed on all these requirements. So we're excited to talk to her today. And I'll let Susan say hello to everyone. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Multi-State Monday. And Deanna, I am honored to be here with um, both you and Christine. And I believe all three of us are working moms. And so... I'm honored to be a part of this podcast with discussing these important laws that have unique implications across the U.S. I am delighted to be here talking about these very important laws. Um, End of December was a big month out of Congress for working moms and protections in the workplace. And I know a lot of our clients have been talking about these issues for years and trying to provide the best possible environment for working moms. And these two statutes are, are very important for working mothers in our country. So Christine, Deanna and I, and then you, we mentioned the two statutes. What are they? And let's tackle the Pump Act, which is part of our title for today. So can you explain a little? Sure. Pump stands for Providing Urgent Maternal Protections for Nursing Mothers. Back in 2010, with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the FLSA was amended to require employers to provide non-exempt breastfeeding employees with reasonable break time to pump and a private non-bathroom space to pump for one year after their child's birth. It was a very important step for mothers in the workplace, but the amendment left many women without any federal protections for pumping breaks. Since 2010, there's been an increased focus on maternal health, including a DOL initiative on maternal health that was announced last summer in conjunction with uh, National Breastfeeding Month, which is August. And one of the commonly cited obstacles to women breastfeeding or, or mothers breastfeeding is lack of support in the workplace. So the Pump Act actually had some pretty good bipartisan support. Uh, those of us watching were pretty confident that it was going to pass. And the Pump Act dramatically expands the legal right to receive pumping breaks and private non-bathroom space to pump to nearly 9 million more U.S. workers, including teachers, registered nurses, farm workers, and many other exempt employees who had been previously unprotected by the amendments to the FLSA from 2010. The Pump Act includes a retaliation provision as well as an enforcement provision. Employees are able to 
file a lawsuit for monetary remedies. It just those provisions of the Pump Act actually just went into effect last week on April 28th. We're currently awaiting further guidance from the EEOC, but recently the DOL did a webinar in which they focused on the private space being functional, a word that appears nowhere in the statute. So I think that when we get more guidance from the EEOC, we might see a little bit more on what they expect that private space to have. I think that's interesting. And that's a common thing that we see from the EEOC, I would say, and putting additional requirements into the guidance that may not be absolutely reflected in the law, certainly. So one question that I have, and I have many, um, we'll start with how this impacts states that have their own lactation laws. So what, what does this do if there's already a state law in place? Absolutely. The Pump Act sets a floor, not a ceiling. States and local jurisdictions are free to enact statutes with greater protections. For example, New York has protected pumping brakes for two for three years after a birth of a child, and California has protections for two years after the birth of the child. Other state and local laws have very specific requirements in terms of what uh, physical requirements are around the room such as nearby to the workspace, there might be a running water or refrigeration request, electricity, et cetera. Some jurisdictions have notices that need to be provided to the employees. Other jurisdictions require these breaks be paid. And importantly, the Pump Act does not require the breaks to be paid if the employee is completely released from duty at the time. Understood. So if you're in one of those states like New York or California that has more stringent requirements, you're going to comply with whichever law is more generous to that employee, correct? Absolutely. Okay. Understood. Certainly employers would have the option to draft policies in such a way that they could choose to provide those benefits to um lactating employees for a longer amount of time than one year if they wanted to do that as a benefit, correct? Absolutely. Many employers are doing that already. Their policies don't have the one-year limitation, and they're providing additional benefits to uh, working mothers when they are in the process of breastfeeding. So does the PUMP Act cover all employers or are there any kind of exceptions for smaller employers or any type of exemption available? Absolutely. As that was the case with the 2010 amendment, employers with fewer than 50 employees may be exempt from complying with the statute if they can establish that doing so would impose an undue hardship, um, causing them a significant difficulty or expense in relation to their size, financial resources, nature or structure of the business. So there's still that exemption that existed under the 2010 FLSA amendments. The biggest exclusion in the Pump Act is that airline crews are excluded, and then rail carrier and motor coach employees are excluded only if complying with the statute would result in a significant expense or in unsafe conditions. But the act specifically says it shall not be considered a significant expense to modify or retrofit a locomotive by installing a curtain or other screening protection to give the private space. So, Christine, I do have a question that arose with regard to that. What about delivery drivers? Right. So delivery drivers are actually still covered by the statute unless they 
are a motor coach employee. So in terms of delivery drivers, Susan, you know, employers are getting creative in that in that regard. And so one, I think it's very important, and I'll, I'll say this all the time when we talk to employers about these issues, is it's important to have a dialogue with the employee. What does that employee need? What does that employee want? The uh, Office of Women's Health of HHS actually has a specific page on location for breaks. And one of the suggestions they make is a car windshield cover, single person pop-up tent. And so if it's a delivery driver, can we, one, make sure that their route is appropriately structured, that we're, that they can take a break during their route in order to pump? And can we work with them to understand when those breaks would need to be? And then can we get them a car windshield cover or, or something of the like to enable them to pump in the private space of the delivery truck? I hadn't thought of that yet. It seems like that might also work for other categories of employees. Like if you have employees that are on the road often for sales Mm -hmm. reasons or account managers and other similar employees. Absolutely. And I think in this space, Deanna, we've seen since so much change and um, so much additional products and resources that nursing mothers are able to access. So some employees might want you to Um, help them with a wearable pump, right? They can wear it under their shirt. They can continue their route while they're pumping if that's something they want. Others are going to say, no, I need to stop and not, and I want to use my normal pump, might need a car charger or whatever, but can we figure out a way to enable this? And sometimes that's just a little creativity and sometimes it's talking to the employee to see what they need and and what they'd like. And is it the employer's responsibility then to purchase those items? It would. It is the employer's responsibility, Susan, to provide the private space. So if there is a windshield cover or something of the like, then the employer would need to provide those items. What about, for example, the car pump or the car charger or the portable? Would that fall into the employer's responsibility or the employee's? Not necessarily the employer's responsibility, but I think that if we're looking at a difficult situation, and right, I'm a lawyer, and when I came back to work with my babies, I was able to be in my office and pump in my office, and it was pretty seamless. That's not everyone's job. So I think if employers want to create an environment where working mothers are able to thrive, they might want to go above and beyond the statute. There's nothing in the statute that says you have to buy the wearable pump for the employee. But if we are trying to work with their employee to support them, that might be something that we can consider. Okay. I think those are good questions and something that I was able to take advantage of, you know, being at Ogletree, which is also a supportive environment, is there are some um, services available too, if you have an employee that has to travel as far as refrigerating any milk that's pumped and shipping that back to the employee's home and things like that were just very helpful and uh, not too cost prohibitive, I think, for an employer to provide. So I think if you're interested in doing more in this space, there are a lot of options if that's something that the company wants to do. Absolutely. And we're seeing a lot of companies do additional benefits and really try to support working mothers and keep them in the workplace. But for those employers that maybe they are smaller or, you know, they have employees that are moving from job job site to job site. So it is difficult to accommodate these breaks. Are there a maximum amount of breaks that an employer would have to provide? How does that work? 
Yeah, so very specifically, the law does not have any sort of maximum breaks. It's reasonable. And I think importantly, every woman is different. Every nursing mother is going to be different. And again, we need to talk to our employees to figure out what they need. There are people that produce very quickly and, and might need just two very short breaks a day. There's people that might need more. And that's very purposeful on, on the part of Congress in not putting in a limitation or a certain requirement because it's going to look different for every person. And we're going to need to work with our employees to decide what that looks like. And, you know, hopefully they can work with us in scheduling. Really important addition here is teachers. Teachers were not covered under the 2010 law. They are exempt employees. And obviously in a kindergarten classroom, we can't just randomly leave during the day. Generally, people like their five-year-olds to be supervised. So if we can work with our employees to say, okay, here's when you need the breaks. Are you able to use lunch? Are you able to use your prep period? If not, when do you need additional breaks so we can make sure we have support and you've got someone in your classroom during those times? Okay. That makes sense, certainly. And it seems like if an employer was trying to establish that undue hardship defense, that it might be a good idea to have documentation that those discussions were had to see if there were ways to work with the employee on those needs. Exactly. Well, speaking of the accommodation and undue burden, one of the things that we did not address is whether or not this applies to remote employees. And with regard, similarly, the law specifies non-bathroom areas. So kind of twofold. One, does it apply to remote employees? And then two, for those in the workplace or even in a hybrid where they're half remote, half in office, what is a quote private space or non-bathroom area and what complies and what does not? So it will apply to remote employees. They have to be free from observation by any video systems such as computer cameras, web conferencing, right? We can't require someone to be on Teams or Zoom or WebEx or the variety of of video platforms that we've used since March of 2020 quite extensively. They need to be allowed the breaks. If they need a break to do this, that we need to be able to provide that break. Importantly, if they're just going to pump while they continue working and they are a non-exempt employee, we need to make sure we're paying for those breaks because they are not completely relieved from duty. But they are covered by the statute in terms of the ability to take those breaks. Okay, great. And if you have an employee who is remote and a team meeting gets scheduled or a video conference gets scheduled, best thing to do is what? Best thing to do, again, start with talking to the employee. Some employees might be perfectly comfortable just not having their video on and pumping. Other people are going to say, look, I don't necessarily want people to hear the pump is on, although I think all three of us will agree they got a lot quieter. (laughs) Between my my last pregnancy, my, my pump was very quiet. But if they might want to have that break, they might not want to be on the team meeting. And I encourage employers to work with their employees on scheduling, right? If you know that every week you're going to have a team meeting, hopefully the employee can schedule around it, or if it's not possible, the employer can can help schedule around it. But again, I think that dialogue with the employee is very important. 
if this person is pumping every day at 10 and one, hypothetically, can we schedule it at 930 if, if they're not comfortable just having their video off? Okay. So Christine, tell us about the other law that was passed with respect to pregnancy, the Pregnancy Workers Fairness Act. What is it and how is it different from the Pregnancy Discrimination Act that has already been in place? Yeah, the Pregnancy Worker Fairness Act kind of fills the gap between the Title VII Pregnancy Discrimination Act and the ADA and covers more employees. It shares actually a lot of parallels with the ADA. And like the ADA, employers with at least 15 employees are subject to the requirements of the PWFA. And it requires employers to provide qualified employees with reasonable accommodations for known limitations related to pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions. Uh, it doesn't specify the type of reasonable accommodations that are required, but the, the Act actually does also direct the EOC to issue regulations to carry out its provision. Those regulations haven't been released yet, but recent guidance from the EOC has been, and there is a set of FAQs on the Act and they highlighted examples um, from the report on the PWFA, including ability to sit, ability to drink water, access to closer parking, which I thought was an interesting thing for people to think about, flexibility in work hours, getting appropriately sized uniforms and safety apparel, interesting time, use of leave, including to recover from childbirth. A lot of American uh, mothers are not covered by the FMLA because they work at too small of an employer or they haven't worked enough to qualify. And excusal from strenuous activities that involve exposure to compounds that aren't safe for pregnancy. So really, the PWFA is all about trying to accommodate pregnant women in the workforce. It removes a requirement that the condition be covered under the ADA. And it requires employers to engage in that interactive process with their employees. So are there any differences, Christine, between the ADA and the PWFA? Yes. So one notable difference is who is a qualified individual and entitled to the protection under the acts. Under the ADA, a qualified individual is an individual with a disability who can perform the essential functions of the job with or without reasonable accommodation. And the PWFA has a similar definition, but one important distinction. An employee is still qualified even if the employee is temporarily unable to perform the essential functions of the job, so long as the inability to do so on that temporary basis can be reasonably accommodated and the possibility of performing the essential functions in the near future exists. So again, pregnancy is, is nine months, right? We're talking mm -hmm. about nine months. We're not talking about the next 10 years. So if there's a limitation that uh, is preventing the person from temporarily being able to perform parts of that job due to pregnancy, the PWFA requires the employer to look at whether there is a reasonable accommodation that can be provided. Okay. So one of my last questions I have before Deanna jumps in and kind of concludes is one of actually Deanna and I's favorite topics is handbook policies. and. We have a situation where um, I was working with a smaller employer, but they are still covered under the act and they did not feel that it was necessary to have a complete policy or a quote, a longer policy explaining either the PWFA and or the accommodations. So what would be a good practice 
or what would an employer be able to consider in that situation? I recommend having a policy, updating your existing lactation policy to ensure it complies with the Pump Act and then any relevant state and local laws. One, it provides notice to your employees. And it says, hey, we're complying with the law. We want our employees to know. And if an employee says, well, you know, I never knew. No one ever told me. I went out on leave and I didn't know that this was available to me when I come back. It's a nice defense to say we've outlined it in the policy mm-hmm. um, rather than saying, well, you know, your manager said they told you that this was a option for you. And I think for Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, it is a good idea to update your policies. One, sometimes looking at a policy also educates perhaps our HR generalists. Maybe our HRBPs are very up on all the laws, but having that policy in place can educate our managers, our HR professionals to ensure they understand their obligations. You know, obviously a next step would be training them to understand the obligations. But I do think that most employers who are keeping handbooks and have these policies are going to want to have well-defined policies in their handbooks or wherever they keep policies to explain processes and requirements to employees. For example, under the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, we need employees to inform us of their limitations, and we'd like to have a process to do so. Employers with well-thought-out and well-developed ADA policies certainly can use those processes for this law, but we want to make sure employees know where to go to ask for these accommodations. Those are great points, Christine. And I certainly think that it is a good idea as a best practice that some employers might want to consider having those policies, making sure they're updated, making sure that they're getting training and acknowledgments where appropriate. Um, I had a couple of final questions for you. One, sometimes I get questions from clients where they offer light duty for workers' compensation injuries. If they have such a plan in place and there's a pregnant employee who needs a similar uh, light duty accommodation, quote unquote, what are some potential pitfalls there if they say those are reserved only for workplace injuries? Right. And I think importantly, Deanna, what you said was duties versus positions, right? We're reserving certain duties. There are employers that have employees with workers' comp injuries come and and sit in the cafeteria all day and they pay them for that time, but they don't have them at home during that time. And normally employers are not doing those kinds of things for ADA. So I think it's going to be a similar analysis as under ADA. But I do think that that goes to kind of the hardship analysis, right? If, If we're able to say workers' comp injury and we're going to remove the ability or the requirement rather to have lift ability of 50 pounds, for a period of time. That might indicate that we can do it for a pregnant worker. Understood. And is there a cure provision in either of these laws? There is a cure provision in the PUMP Act that says that employees can, they inform the employer there's a 10-day cure period. So if an employee says, hey, you're violating my rights, you should not squander that 10-day cure period. I actually have one quick question. I'm sorry, so so sorry, Deanna, to interrupt. But the big question I have is, who is going to be enforcing these? And where would an employee go to seek either resolution? Or I know when you mentioned in the very beginning of the podcast that these laws provide for 
ability to file suit. Um, Would that be under federal law, state law, or must they go to the EEOC within 300 days like other laws? So the PWFA will be enforced both via private litigation and via the EEOC. The EEOC is going to be active in this space. The EEOC has already indicated that this is an area of great concern for them. Just a few weeks ago, they settled a pregnancy discrimination lawsuit under the PDA for $400,000. So they're going to be very active in this space. In terms of the Pump Act, the Pump Act is enforced by the DOL. It's an FLSA issue and then employees can bring private suits. Okay. Christine, this has been a wealth of information regarding these new laws. We can't thank you enough for joining us today. And happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers out there. And we hope you'll join us for another episode of Multistate Monday very soon. Thanks, Dan and Susan. Thank you, Christine. The opportunity to talk with you today. Yes, this has been great. Thank you. Stay tuned for more. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.